You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode number 25 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. Andrew Mangan is my guest today. And Andy is the founder and the executive director of the United States Business Council for Sustainable Development. This is a nonprofit association made up of businesses that was launched back in 1993. The council is really about combining the capabilities of its members to develop, test, and scale sustainability solutions. And they currently focus in the areas of energy, water, materials, cities, and ecosystems. Today, Andy and I explore how collaboration shows up when businesses join forces to address sustainability issues. We'll hear how environment and economy have been front and center in the drive for sustainability, but we'll also hear how addressing important social issues have begun to take their place in sustainability. Please enjoy our conversation. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Can you tell me where you're joining from? I'm joining from Hood Canal in Puget Sound. It's uh, about an hour away from Seattle. Oh, very nice. And the weather out there today is fantastic, I assume. It is very nice. It's uh, probably uh, 60 Fahrenheit and, and a little windy, but it's beautiful. Nice. So can you tell me exactly what an executive director of the United States Business Council for Sustainable Development does on a day-to-day basis? That's kind of a mouthful of a title, too. It is. I wouldn't have chosen it, but that's the way it came out. <laughs> we started the Business Council back in 1992, so it's kind of gotten flows out of my tongue uh, really easily. But um, So the daily uh, executive director job is coordinating operations with my colleagues, uh, number one, uh, on different projects. So the Business Council is very much a sustainable development project-driven group of companies and organizations that are all working together to try to come up with solutions for sustainable development challenges. We work with companies on specific project kind of platforms, we call them, or categories like water decarbonization and energy transition, things like ecosystem services, uh, materials reuse or circular economy. All of those categories cross industry lines and... um, So we have to coordinate those. Our goal is to help get companies working together so that they find ways to engage with one another on project opportunities. So it sounds like there's a fair bit of collaboration required. And I'm going in that direction because I'm kind of curious if there is a specific definition you use for collaboration. The core of what we do is based on collaboration and the idea that oftentimes companies have common objectives or common goals, but they don't necessarily have ways to connect. A, a major part of our collaboration approach is, uh, is connecting common interests among companies. Uh, and so we stay very focused in that way on specific categories like the ones I mentioned. We also recognize collaboration and cooperation are quite different. Collaboration, you, you really want to have agreement on a common goal and you also want to have the idea that we're all in it together and we're going to share interests as well as outcomes. So those are 
kind of the basics for our collaboration to often that spins off cooperations between different companies where they're actually working together on different specific activities. And we we're pleased if we're able to facilitate that kind of thing. So does that collaboration or collaborative effort often sort of include really novel types of things, novel solutions to problems, or is it simply essentially coordinating in kind of a collaborative way? Like, are there is there a mix there? What's happening? Yeah, I, so the way we, we work it or facilitate the engagement is get after companies share information about what they're interested in, say decarbonization, uh, different categories. One might be uh, nature-based sequestration of carbon. They have different interests. One might be an investor, want to invest in those kinds of things. The other might be a a landowner that would like to engage but doesn't quite know how. So we help not only bring them together, but answer the questions and craft a roadmap to actually drive toward project implementation. So to give you a specific example, right now across the U.S. and in Canada, there's interest in tying carbon credits to nutrient retention on on farmlands or on lands in the riparian near riparian zones of water courses and the nutrient programs have been developing for the last uh, 20 years or so and are in some cases very successful but the linking carbon credits is brand, is new and no one quite knows how to do it yet but it's a doable thing so we're working on that so you mentioned a little bit about the geography that's involved, but can you give me a sense of the scale of sort of that you typically work at? What scale is sort of the right, the typical? Yeah, well, so oftentimes we work at a regional, so in my or subnational, so that would be uh, like the Great Lakes would be an example of a region or the Gulf Coast, and we find that's really helpful because there's a lot of common ground among, say, the states, Texas, Louisiana, across to Florida, and that ties them together and allows for some linkages. Same with the Great Lakes. And and if you think of those two regions, there's not as much connectivity but uh, at the face value. But as we, as we work on projects, things that are happening in one region often find uh, interest in another. Right. So it's a bit of a cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Does the collaboration kind of get initiated by the council or is it sort of groundswell, like somebody is interested and then the council, your, you and your, your team get involved? Is it you first or them first? Uh, it, can dep- it depends. Some, in the past, uh, comp- our member companies have suggested we do certain, uh, start certain uh, collaborative efforts, like we have a current Gulf Coast Carbon Collaborative. It's about uh, bringing companies in the Gulf region together, along with research institutes, uh, academic institutions, government agencies, uh, to zero in on the various decarbonization strategies that are available right now. And uh, how do they how do they work? Are they the right kind for me? Or how do we go forward with like a portfolio? How they would address our company's commitments? So. That one started when a couple of companies, one in particular, came to us and said where they'd been getting a lot of inquiries. It was a, it was a power, power production company. They'd been getting a lot of inquiries about from their big major customers asking for help on decarbonization strategies because uh, many companies over the last two or three years have made uh, aspirational uh, commitments to be net zero carbon emissions or footprint by 2050. But 
not many know how they're going to get there. So that kind of leads me to this question around sustainability and collaboration. Do you see a way in which sustainability can be achieved without collaboration? Or are the two kind of pretty heavily intermixed? I'd say in the early years of the efforts by companies to implement sustainability, it was mostly internal. So they were trying to figure out what does this mean to my company and how do we measure, how do we then address the challenges that we identify? And so they went down that path. But as you get down, go do go down that path, you find uh, there's a need to reach outside of your company's fence line. And sometimes it's right next door, sometimes it's across the country, but there are a lot of, then it opens up to tremendous additional opportunities. It's like throwing open a your curtains on a big picture window and looking out at a new landscape and uh, of opportunities. So that that's where we are now. I think it took 20, 20 years to get here, but uh, that's where we are now. I think so. Collaboration is key. And it's also these challenges that we're facing are so huge that you ha- you, no company can do it by themselves or no industry can do it. You know, all the tech companies in the world can do some things, but they can't they can't do it all with, uh, say, on climate change. Right. Can you give an example to sort of illustrate what you're talking about when you when you talk about the opportunities that come from companies suddenly starting to work together that maybe wouldn't normally work together? Like, what's the example that comes to mind? Well, one is uh, in the circular economy world where a company, its products go out the door and go out into the marketplace and it's left left behind variety of materials that are no longer of any use to it, but could be of use to others. And so in, in changing your approach to, uh, you know, let's just consider this waste to get rid of, to let's see who and how we might turn those uh, leftover materials into products, co-products or for others. That's a classic one. So uh, the uh, automotive industry is a good example of that. They've got all kinds of, you know, thousands of different materials they use and a lot of them stack up in huge volumes that are potentially of great use and, and have become useful to others. Are there key pieces in the collaboration that sort of need to be in place like for these companies to start even thinking about it or for it to even cross their their minds and their radar? What Are there some preconditions for companies to want to be involved or for them to even be interested? Well, on the leading edge of uh, an effort, yes, I'd say. For example, uh, we are launching a Great Lakes Carbon Collaborative right now and we're talking to companies across the Great Lakes and describing, you know, here's what we do to get all the companies and research it together to zero in on how we might implement hydrogen or carbon capture or nature-based or, or electric, all those different approaches. And the ones who are leading it have major commitments in the region to goal, those goals. Others have as well. So they would be, when you describe the concept to them, they think it makes a lot of sense and they want to get involved. Uh, some who may not have carbon commitments and could then be swayed, but they typically be swayed by who else is already involved. Mm. You know, that's an that's a question that often who's there. And uh, another is confidentiality. Uh, just from a legal point of view, we try to stay away from 
bringing up confidential information so that you don't have to, you know, start watching out for certain elements that are declared confidential. So we try to avoid that. That's another key kind of component of how we operate. Right. So you keep it in sort of the safe zone. Yeah. So that companies uh, have fewer barriers to being involved. Yeah. And the door is open if they wanted to have a side uh, ramp conversation uh, that they say, let's make this confidential. We can do that. But the generally... Let's keep everything open, and uh, it works really well because you can actually see kind of the uh, light bulbs going off and the connections being made as you have these meetings. The other thing is it's not a one-time event. We have on, It's an ongoing cadence of, uh, of meetings to focus ever deeper on the subjects. So in these carbon collaboratives, we meet, the working groups meet on a monthly basis for an hour, and, and it allows them to count on you know, answering the questions that they have and or bringing up uh, new challenges. So that's that's another component. It's not a one-time deal. You have to have an ongoing presence and uh, process. Does it matter that it's a business-first approach as opposed to, say, government, a government-led initiative? Like, can you con- compare and contrast sort of what benefit of a business-led approach is? Both are really valid, of course. Uh, typically, the government approaches are policy-oriented. You know, what policy recommendations should we develop that would most help address whatever the challenge is? Uh, and there are a couple of those going on right now, and uh, one in Michigan and one in Louisiana led by the governors, and uh, those are great. Uh, our business-led effort is much more on how do we implement these concepts as projects that help actually reduce the carbon footprint of the companies. So they produce empirical results, or the idea would be that can inform policies. So, or if we're trying to do that and we bump up against a policy barrier, we can bring that to the attention of the policy organizations. Do you get really weird companies working together? Like companies that you would just sort of go... I would never would have expected, you know, company A and company B to work together. And, and would you have an example? We have had that happen. Uh, maybe the classic example would be, um, oh, it was a few years ago, but it was General Motors was working. Uh, that GM has had a long time commitment to material reuse and zero landfill. And they were trying to find a uh, substitute for, I think it was uh, associated with a with some bearings in, in a processing plant. And the partner came from the food service industry, a company called Hormel, I think, uh, that had a new product that they were using that had characteristics that were needed in the in the automotive side, a food product. So. Food product and an automotive. That's an interesting pairing. I like that. Yeah. I, well, and I like the fact that it's, that the solutions can come from, you know, pretty much anywhere. Right, it's not it's not um, preordained that automotive has to work with, you know, metal manufacturing and plastics and such. It connects across sectors, as you said. Yeah, that's true. And uh, you know, another uh, in another area, we're working with um, historically black colleges and universities to get them engaged in the, the whole climate and energy transition more with companies. And uh, out of that has come tremendous uh, connections with students and faculty that had had not happened before. Right. So that's a fascinating area too, an example. So maybe let's dive a little bit into sort of 
a little bit of the how, like how you do some of these things and, and maybe some of your insights into how to make these kinds of collaborations work. So I'm curious, once you've gathered a group of people in the room, is there a certain flow that you're aiming for? Are there certain tactics you're using depending on what the question is? Or is it simply letting these companies and these reps work through it on their own? Well, there's a little bit of both. We zero in to get started. It's on a an issue of common interest. So that's the starting point, whether it's carbon or water or or materials or, or other. And um, and then you get into, so you start at that point. So what is the state of play in those categories in this region where we're operating? And have the companies describe what, they're, what they view, uh, say, for example, on water, what are your water needs? What are your water kind of uh, disposal flows? What are your stormwater challenges? Those are the three main water categories. And then as they start describing that, other companies hear it and they say, I recognize that. That's what my company has some of the same issues. And I'd love to see your <laughs> your water plan. You know, So the next thing you know, they're starting to recognize there's a lot of potential for joining forces on, uh, on these things. And in fact, uh, there's also recognition that uh, when there's a water shortage... All of them expect to get their water, but they don't realize there may not be enough water. And so then they might have to cut back. And uh, so expectations start to change and reality about, you know, what the whole system looks like starts to come in. So then you, once you set the table like that and get some common understanding, you get into what are the ways we can address some of these challenges that we've just uncovered and or opportunities. Does that, for your role and the role of your your staff and associates, does that mean you're kind of facilitating these discussions, like very hands-on setting agendas, you know, setting activities for people to move through those types of things? Or is it a lot more open-ended? Is I'm kind of getting the sense that that's where it goes, is that it's a bit more unstructured than sort of a deep facilitation type of thing. Well, actually, it is a quite a deep facilitation because as these opportunities or challenges are are kind of uncovered and revealed, you have to pursue them. And so we orchestrate the follow-ups, following steps. How do we deal with this? And and out of that come project opportunities that either emerge from the discussions or we are able to capture through conversations internally with the group or externally. We bring in resources that can help facilitate that. So uh, people can understand what's out there, whether it's a government agency that's that's interested in supporting, you know, decarbonization, Department of Energy in the U.S. or Department of Agriculture have programs that they want companies to participate in. They So we get them engaged and then we discuss, well, how can we, who's interested in that? How do we pursue it? Here's some of the parameters and or new project ideas like one uh, would be let's uh, there's an opportunity to electrify with solar the campuses of all these uh, historically black colleges and, and universities in a way that would give them some ownership and also address some of the funding inequities that have 
occurred over the past hundred years or uh, that that are being revealed now so that are needed so those and suddenly the the companies want to help with that so those are that was not expected when we started and that but that emerged so if I'm understanding correctly the the sustainability focus has been leading to some of these other social sort of more social innovation types of issues or are helping to resolve some of these other issues as well. So it's spreading out across the the society. Is that what I'm hearing correctly? Well, that's true. And uh, from the beginning, sustainable development was always economic, environmental, and social aspects. So over the years, the environmental and economic have gotten the majority of attention in the U.S. and Europe, for that matter. But developing countries is different. It's much more socially focused. But now this is a... uh, a growing commitment across corporate America on, you know, diversity, equality, and kind of involvement. And that's something that is, investments are coming in there as never before. Recognition that, hey, this is, uh, we've talked about social aspects of sustainability, but uh, it was always, it may not have been as clear. Now, this is a clear way to address some of those. Why aren't these uh, underserved communities in the room when we're talking about decarbonization, for example? They're they're probably uh, among the most affected by climate change, and they're not even at the table. They're not. I mean, their engineering, the engineering programs at at these schools should be engaged because they produce just as uh, talented students as any school, of course. Do you see this as just sort of the result of an evolution over the time? In my head, I'm kind of wondering why is why has it taken us so long to get to this point? It's a good uh, observation. It just hasn't it hasn't been on the forefront because the say uh, black, Hispanic, indigenous populations have not been major voices in the discussions on sustainable development over the years. And I mean, the interests that have been driving those conversations are, they're important and have done a lot of good work. But I think the shift that happened in the U.S. over the last year and year and a half or so, recognition of, uh, hey, there are some really deep-rooted elements to this that we need to address. And as you start uncovering some of those, you realize there's a lot of really positive pathways to go down in the future to help address those. And sure, there are legacy challenges but that'll be have to be addressed. But if you look uh, and engage on sustainable development issues for the future with those communities, it's going to have uh, transformative effects, I think. Right. So sustainability and collaboration are going to be even more linked and intertwined as we go forward. Yeah. And kind of a key component in it all is effective communication. Uh, you have to be able to both listen and, and communicate ideas. Oftentimes, people think they are, but uh, the people they're talking to are hearing something different right. than what they're trying to communicate. So that that's a really big component because all the things that we've been talking about really are communication devices to get people engaging together to take action. Do you see particular barriers that we could overcome? Or to flip that around, I guess, do you have some advice on how we could communicate a little bit better based on your experience with these various companies and initiatives? 
Well, paying attention to what their interests are, that's what drives us because the member companies drive us in that direction is at the base, at the heart of it. But you have to learn and be kind of recognize that they all have different decision-making processes internally. So it's going to take a while to get through some of these discussions. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll give you an example. When I we were working on a material reuse uh, program and uh, with a whole bunch, let's say 20 companies, each of the companies had a lot of different questions. They had their different processes and uh, we had to work through it. It took a couple of years to get to the point where you're actually producing results. And then uh, we had a separate program that was all within one company. I think there were 25 different business units from four different manufacturing sites all within the one company and uh, ran the same uh, process of engagement and collaboration and within three months had identified $100 million worth of opportunity just among the those internal businesses. What kind of role of, does experimentation have in this whole scenario? So you talked about, I mean, finding opportunities for you know new revenue or saved revenue there's lots of these opportunities popping up but how many of them are kind of a you need to try it to know if it works a lot of that is out there and there are a lot of new technologies that are vying for support i mean some um, for example there's a solar innovator that developed a solar array that intensifies the sun power into a center point that produces 2,000 degree centigrade power to be applied. Their question became, who wants that? Yeah. <laughs> who can we sell that to? And, 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 and in the end, they wound up selling it to a steel company, a steel mini mill that could use that as its power source. And it's just in an experimental stage right now. But uh, my guess is there'll be many others that are like that, that will buy into that technology. The company's called Heliogen, and ArcelorMittal, the steel company, is the one that's uh, given it a try. Right. So uh, there are many other examples like that. Uh, some are big, some are small, but they need to hit the marketplace. So, you know, General Electric's got a a wind turbine or a turbine, a power turbine that you put in small waterways. It's only uh, probably eight to 10 feet wide and you drop it in and it's a turbine that produces electricity, but they've got to find ways to sell that and market it to customers. So that, that's an experimental approach. To, so a lot of technologies are in that category, but also getting companies to work together in new ways is uh, there's a lot of experimentation there. Does that fall back to your association then to kind of harness sort of the the methods that come out of that, the innovations that come out of working together so that they can be played out across the system? Or does it fall to just the individual companies to figure that out? Uh, well, no, we do help with that and uh, are responsible for validating those and as legitimate to pursue and to try to engage with. We also drive the new kind of systems approaches like the tying in a carbon credit to nutrient retention on, on farmlands. Uh, that's something we're going to help drive that conversation. Another one is getting carbon credits for material reuse. So uh, if you re- reuse a ton of steel versus create it from iron ore, what's the balance of energy use? 
And should you get credit for that? And the difficulty there is each transaction is unique. So you have to have some kind of a structure that's able to calculate the life cycles of all those products and come out with the, the number at the end in order to get credit. So right. that's another one we're working on with uh, and involved our uh, government agencies like the National Institute for Standards and Technology here in the U.S. and uh, to try to come up with a standard that could allow you to do that. It seems from the examples that you've been speaking to the industries and such that when you talked about your various you know, sector groups or, or your focus areas, that there still is not a lot of mixing sort of across those yet. But I could be, I could be just un- not understanding that correctly. When you have a collaborative, a regional collaborative, is it focused on one of those areas, like, like you said, carbon or ecosystem services? But there isn't, it seems like there isn't a lot of mixing across all of those. Well, uh, it is focused in that way, as you described, so that we're not trying to cover the whole landscape. But as you go down the path with those effort like on carbon, you run into water opportunities. So water, uh, whether it's moving water, which takes energy, or or this uh, water nutrient cycle that I described, uh, same with an ecosystem services, which applies across the board, comes in. So there's a lot of interconnections that emerge, but kind of the organizing principle is zero in on one or another. And then as you go down that path, you if you connect with beyond water to carbon, that's okay. So it becomes a bit organic in that regard. Oh, yeah, that's happening. In the Great Lakes, the water has come up as a major focus for carbon. It did not come up in the Great in the Gulf of Mexico that way. Right. So that's, that's a regional difference. Is there a role for the public in these types of things? Well, in the end, yes, they need to be aware of what is going on and they need to get accurate information. That's a difficult challenge these days <laughs> because uh, there's so many different real sounding stories, but that are not based in reality. So we try to inform the public uh, and invite them to some of the, you know, the launch events or activities. However, our major focus is, uh, of course, on the business side and with collaborators that can help achieve some real uh, movement on these these sustainability challenges. But uh, the public's got to be aware. They've got to be educated. It's an area of opportunity that we might have to, we might want to need to do more on. But it's an important one and something we'll have to think about in the future. So if you were, if you were to give some advice to, say, a new CEO that was considering, you know, for his company setting or her company setting a, uh, a net zero target and starting down this road of, improving sustainability what what's your advice for uh, for a new leadership team let's say one is you're in this with many many others that are going down the same road so engaging with them is a really important first step because part of this too is a lot of the folks who are within these companies charged with implementing these corporate goals are new to climate change. They, they don't have a background in it. And so they have to learn a whole lot in a short time. So they're, um, they need help. And then uh, typically it's a relatively small team, even some of the biggest companies. So there's a lot of opportunity to help them learn about what are the various approaches so they know the full landscape, which 
of those make the most sense for their company and their operations. Uh, it's usually a portfolio, not just one. It could be three or four different approaches. And and then uh, what are the what are the barriers in the way? If there are policy barriers, like we need more uh, policy support uh, in the U.S. for hydrogen development and or carbon capture and storage. But uh, if that were there, they could work for a lot of companies. It doesn't, it's not there yet. It is there in Europe, for example. So that's where most of the, that kind of activity is taking place today and in the past several years. But uh, should, we're hoping that'll come out of Washington this in the next couple of years. So those are uh, key elements. I think also uh, the idea that this is a commitment not just driven by in, your investors or, or the regulators, but it's the way the whole world is going. And so the short-term investments are going to pay dividends in the longer term. And you're doing, you're responding to what uh, society is demanding, so ultimately. You know, I wish in a way that there was sort of even more awareness than what there is. Like what I'm hearing is that there's, this is growing, it's, it's advancing across the landscape, but it's just not, it hasn't gotten to a full on groundswell yet. There's still lots to learn and lots to figure out and that we need to figure it out together. Yeah, that's true. And the good, the good news, in fact, I heard today uh, that this year, the, the carbon credit market has exploded as compared to last year for the first time in ever. It's uh, gone up three or four fold in 2021. That means a lot more companies are buying credits. And just to distinguish, a credit uh, is something you go for after you've tried to apply uh, carbon reduction to all your own operations, your internal operations and those of your uh, immediate supply chain, which would be so that then you, you still need to, to reduce your carbon footprint. You go on the carbon credit market, uh, which is is what's expanding dramatically uh, now. Right. You know, in my head, I sort of see it as, you know, a company does what they can. Like you say, they reduce, they reduce their own emissions, their own footprint. And then they go to others that can do better than them or maybe create, you know, the positive side of the equation. And then then it becomes a bit of a balancing act across across the region or across the business players. Is that an accurate picture? Uh, Yes, that is. And uh, there's been a lot. Once you get outside of your own operations, you encounter risk. Who are we working with? Are these credits for real? Are they being double counted, all, all those kinds of things have been barriers over the past 20 years or so. And But what's happening more recently is there's some trust built and also transparency built into to the level where companies are convinced to invest. And that's just so gratifying to hear that we've kind of gotten over some of the systemic or systematic issues, although we have still many to solve. But We've gotten the base, the basics down, so we can start to move, move beyond that, uh, and into some of the real problems. Yeah, if this kind of hockey stick growth, which has happened in the last year, continues, it's a huge breakthrough. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to add, or that you'd like to speak to? One thing is there is such a, a level of opportunity to engage in North America across uh, national borders. I think there's tremendous potential there that has not 
been tapped as thoroughly and as well as it could be. I think the companies, the borders are there, of course, they're political borders, but uh, there's a lot of engagement opportunities that are possible. And the, and, uh, the Canadian uh, colleagues can really bring some tremendous support and uh, experience and, and know-how uh, to the U.S. And the same is true potentially for engagement in Mexico. So I, I think that's the North American opportunity is very big, huge. It involves all kinds of untapped opportunities. And that's an area I, I would love to see grow in the future. We, we are working in the Great Lakes across both U.S. Uh, states and Canadian provinces. So that's, that's we're starting on that. We've done that in the past in the, with Mexico and, and Canada. So that, but it's, uh, it could become much more robust in the future, I hope. Right. And I think if, if there's any sort of group that can do it, it'll be a business-led led approach with, with the rest of the society, government, et cetera, sort of supporting where they can, but not necessarily, you know, they're not on the point of this. It'll be the the business that steps in and and solves the solves the issue that helps them out and helps out society. I think. Yeah, there was. It uh, reminds me of a scenario uh, that was done way back uh, around more than twenty years ago. That was uh, projecting how sustainable development would flourish. And one scenario was go- driven by government, and that meant uh, regulations and uh, uniformity and. But it also led to some uh, kind of uh, dissension and, and opposition. That was one. And the other, which was business-led along with a government, but led by business, was presented as a uh, like a jazz uh, combo with each uh, sector playing its own instrument and working together to produce a great, a great uh, harmony, you know, which is, uh, it was aspirational, but it was a nice image. Well, and it's interesting that that's the image that you mentioned because when I've talked to some others about collaboration, we've talked about collaboration being, in some cases, a symphony. And you can't, every every instrument has its merit, but it's, you can't have a symphony unless you have all the instruments playing together with a little bit of coordination. So there's an overlap between what you're talking about and the collaborative concept in my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the last question I have for you is one that I ask everybody. It's around books. I'm curious if you have a book that you either typically give as a gift or maybe you recommend it uh, repeatedly, or it could be one that's just been very influential for you. I always try and ask this question because I like compiling my list of books that I, I might one day get to read in my free time. Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, I've got a couple of books that I think about. One is a favorite from many, uh, from my youth. It's a book called The Treasure of Sierra Madre. You may have seen the movie or uh, heard about it. It was a Humphrey Bogart movie, but the concept is uh, about a mixed group of kind of down and out uh, folks. This is down in Mexico and they somehow get a treasure map and they go uh, go off into the desert and, and start uh, looking for the buried treasure, the gold mine, whatever, and they, they wind up finding it. And then they, uh, they go through the process of uh, digging it out and everybody, everything's really good. They're really happy. They found the, you know, the huge uh, strike. And, uh, but as they do that over time, uh, they start getting suspicious of one another uh, there are three of them, three guys, and uh, and then they start saying, "Well, we need to split up our uh, 
the, the gold so that we each have our share. And then uh, uh, they agree to do that. Then they got to go hide their share <laughs> from each other. And I mean, it, it goes down that path. That's my recommendation. It's an old, uh, old book written in the 1920s, but, uh, and sometimes it's kind of maybe hard to get into, but once you get into it, it's, it's a fantastic, uh, and I didn't tell you the end, but uh, probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody has to figure out the end or read, read it for themselves, I guess. <laughs> that's true, yeah. So that's, that may be different than the norm, but that's a good one. That's a, like a lifelong uh, favorite for me. Well, there's, there's absolutely no time limit on good books and, and wisdom. And so uh, I appreciate that kind of uh, snapshot of, of what you have drawn inspiration from. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time today to, to speak with me and sort of touch on, just barely really, touch on sort of the, the basics of, of sustainable development and the ties between that and collaboration. So thank you again for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Andy, for that fun and informative conversation on sustainability and on collaboration. You know, if there's one thing that's clear to me from our conversation, it's that a sustainable future, whatever we want that to be, will require us to work together across the fence line. No one government or business will be able to reach the goals we need to reach without collaborating. It's fantastic to see businesses, even ones as disparate as the automotive and the food industries, working together in new and innovative ways and modeling what is needed into the future. Thank you for listening. Share this episode with two friends who you think would also enjoy listening and tell them about the show. If your friends don't really do podcasts, be sure to tell them what they're missing and help them follow the show. Until the next time, happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.